0: Spend less time quoting and more time selling. Hello, Job Shop fans. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Job Shop Show. This episode changes up the pace. We are speaking with Chris Hopkins of Datron Dynamics, a manufacturer of high-speed milling machines. Early in my career, I sold CAD CAM software to Job Shops, and one of the things I picked up was the characteristics of shops who were profitable and growing, and then the shops who are struggling day to day. So we'll talk about some high-speed milling. Actually, we'll talk a lot about that. But I also wanted to talk with Chris about some of the things he sees that higher growth, more profitable shops are implementing, as well as how they may be using high-speed milling and how that creates advantages for them. So with that, welcome to the crop. Welcome. With that, Hi,
1: Jay. Well,
0: how are you doing? Hold on. We're going to edit this out. <laughs> no, no problem. <laughs> what? No, stay stay there, Carrie. We'll just edit it out afterwards. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, Chris.
1: Hi, Jay. Good morning.
0: In talking with you before the show, you shared that one of the trends that is making high-speed milling more applicable is the movement to smaller and smaller parts, and I've seen that, too. How have you seen this evolve over the years and what do you think driving it?
1: Well, I think um, obviously things getting smaller and smaller. Um, we deal mainly in the electronics industry, but when you look at you know things going from almost like BCR or laptops getting smaller and smaller down to basically being able to compute on your phone, uh, components also need to get smaller. And when you start getting into machining smaller parts, tighter tolerances, smaller tools, um, it's more applicable for high-speed machining or higher RPM.
0: And so you think the miniaturization of products is what's driving the trend towards smaller parts?
1: That and just the machinability of smaller parts now, or being able to machine with you uh, know sub-5,000 tools.
0: Okay, so the, um, fact, the fact that you can do something that you weren't able to do before.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think um, technology and machining has changed enough where I've seen multiple times people machining with a 1,000 NMO or a 1,000 drill, which uh, before was never possible. Yeah, that's pretty tiny. So
0: before we get into the meat of it, you're a smart guy. Mm -hmm. Why manufacturing rather than becoming a doctor or a lawyer? How'd you get started?
1: It's actually a pretty funny story. um, My background isn't in manufacturing or machining or any of that. I actually ran a restaurant. Really? (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Daytron was in the area, and started helping out there, and just got introduced to machining and being around a CNC machine by Daytron being in that area, Um, and. I really took to it. So it interested me. And what it came down to was, you know, getting the software on my laptop and just really wanting to make things. And this was like an opportunity for me to have the tools I needed to just kind of, I would say, satisfy my creativity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just really stuck to me. And I ended up working for Datron. And I started off, you know, way at the bottom. I did service and, Swept floors, and now I've run the West Coast operations out of Livermore, California.
0: So you really, really. did start at the bottom then. Are, were you yeah. always <laughs> were you always I know you're on the West Coast, and Daytron is here in New Hampshire, where we're recording this. Did you start on the West Coast, or were you in New Hampshire?:
1: Well, I was actually in New Hampshire. Um, I was living in Milford, which is down the street from the office there. Mm -hmm. And um, I did service, went into applications, installed and trained people on how to use the equipment and, you know, come up with outside the box ideas to kind of automate things. And did that for about 10 years before moving out to California and opening the West Office. And how long have you been with Datron? Uh, About 15 years now.
0: 15 years. Datron is a German
1: company, that's correct? Yes. So, companies company is based uh, just south of Frankfurt, Germany, and Darmstadt. Um, they work very closely with Darmstadt University, which is in the area and, and known for high speed machining. What's your role now at Datron? What do you do? So, I'm solely responsible for all the operations on the west coast so anything from colorado west um mainly in the bay area being so close to it <laughs> but we have uh, a sales showroom service applications um inventory everything on the west coast over in livermore a lot of responsibility yeah but it's fun um it's it's been interesting since moving out here i've had a deeper appreciation for um, the troubles people have trying to get crazy parts made. You <laughs> um, see quite a bit of parts, especially when we talk about parts getting smaller. Mm-hmm. We see quite a bit of things just getting very, very small, and the challenges are more of how can we make it and make this work because they can always design it, but the troubles in getting it made. So I want to get into high-speed milling, but
0: it just makes me curious. You've probably been into a lot of beyond job shops, some of the product companies out there and some of the common names that we hear. Do you have any success stories or just interesting stories in some of those companies? Is it maybe that you were in early and you've seen the growth? I've
1: definitely seen the growth in quite a, few companies there i can't normally name them (laughs) okay um but what the the growing trend is is that we were talking about high-speed machining there's high-speed machining which is or milling i'd like to call it which is um you know just a higher feed rates uh higher rpm lighter lighter cuts um but what they're looking at when they say high-speed machining is actually the whole process so how fast can they get um, the, you know, their code from their CAM software into the machine? The setup time is as short as possible, big string as easy as possible, get the machine off. So um, there are actual cycle times that these larger companies are looking for are actually the whole cycle time of when an engineer gives a part two, um, you know, a facility to get made to when they actually get it back.
0: I appreciate you bringing that up because that's words do make a difference. So I like how high-speed milling can define the actual characteristics on the machine. Whereas high-speed machining is that, as you said, the amount of time from the engineer to finish product. That's a great way of looking at it.
1: One yeah, of the th- from um, go ahead. I
0: was going to say one of the things that, we also talked a little bit about was and i'm not sure whether it's best described as high speed machining or high speed milling but using this as a tool for rapid prototyping so how do you think that qualifies as rapid prototyping
1: well um we talked about like a workflow or in the manufacture or the manufacturing of a part um if you go through all the steps and mm-hmm. you go into rapid prototyping, it's really, like I said, these larger companies are doing pretty much the same thing. Um, they want to get the part through the cam system as fast as possible, set up on the machine as fast as possible, and then machined. Um, when it comes to uh, high speed milling in that aspect, when you have a high RPM spindle and you're doing high speed milling, you're a little bit more forgiving, And you can use smaller tools to do larger, say, features without having to change a tool to do for every different type of feature. So that, I I guess,
0: you gain time through simplification.
1: Yes, uh, less tools, um, consistent setups, things like that nature. So let's get into... The
0: nitty gritty of high speed milling. I've got a bunch of questions, and it was not something when I was an owner at Rapid that we had implemented. So I want to look at this as if I wanted to implement high speed milling as that, because we certainly saw a lot of parts that probably would have benefited from high speed milling. So,
1: mm-hmm.
0: what is high speed milling let's try to specifically define that
1: so i would say high speed milling is the use of uh, lighter cuts higher rpm higher feed rates in a material instead of larger tools um, slower feed rates slower rpms and um, heavier cuts so heavier um, engagement rates um
0: So specifically, when what's the sort of starting point of RPM for high-speed milling and what does it go up to?
1: I've seen it go up to, uh, you know, 100,000 RPM with <laughs> some really small well, tools. Well. Um, normally, it really depends on the type of milling your, your material, um, the tools you're using, things like that. But... Uh, for instance, uh, one of our machines will use a single flute, say quarter inch NML, mm-hmm. uh, and we'll run that at 34,000 RPM and in like, the five meters per minute range. Five meters per minute. Okay.
0: What, so what is so, the so min- minimum RPM that sort of qualifies for high speed milling in your mind?
1: Well, it's really, you can go down to lower RPMs, but your feed rate's going to suffer from it because what you're doing is you're doing a lighter side cut. Mm -hmm. So normally you want to use the whole flute as well. So if we look at, they all have different names, but in general it's a tricoil milling. So what happens is is when you cam apart, you use either adaptive or opti rough or whatever the software calls it mm-hmm. but you want to use as much as the flute length as possible on your cut so you're doing a, a full depth cut as as long as your flute length is if that's what's needed mm-hmm. and you're taking lighter cuts on the side and it's constantly doing circles to come and take that material so you have a constant engagement and you're not losing feed rate Gotcha. And your constant engagement is that when you have a smaller, or when you have a tool go into a corner, you're not burying the tool, say, you know, 90 to 180 degrees going into the corner. What are you doing instead? So it's it's constantly doing little circles to remove that material and then come. Okay. Okay. So it's a, a um movement. Mm-hmm very hard to explain it in words no, that, without no, that,
0: uh, I, I definitely and i'm sure shop owners and machinists who are listening to this have a good sense of that when you say you're taking lighter cuts what what are we talking about in terms of the material removal in terms of a lighter cut versus a more traditional cut if we want to call it that
1: So what happens is you start, you're taking about usually about 15% or less of the tool diameter off the side. That's what your step over is Mm -hmm. on a cut like this. But because of the high RPM or higher use of higher RPM and higher feed rate in your uh, thinner chip, you're actually getting a higher chip volume in a long run compared to conventional machining. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense. And you're also benefiting from longer tool life, better finish, less stress on the part. Why is the tool life longer? Uh, Because you're not focusing on using one part of the tool all the time when you're cutting. So if you're using the total flute length, most of the time uh, a tool you'll see be chipped on the tooth on the bottom. Mm -hmm. Or just a section of the bottom of the tool. Uh, When you're using adaptive milling or any of these um, high-speed milling techniques... What happens is you have less heat on the tool because you're taking a thinner chip and the heat's coming out with the chip, but you're also uh, using the whole flute. So you're essentially when a chip uh, tool breaks or wears out just on one section of the tool, the rest of the tool is still good, but right. you just don't have a way to use it. <laughs>
0: yep. That was always frustrating. I would definitely see the chips at the bottom of the tooling and be able to essentially cut my finger if I wanted to higher up. So that's a, and I know the CAM software is a huge part of this, but the fact that you are not generating a lot of heat has so many advantages as you, you talked about the, the tool length. But maybe you could specifically get back into how that affects the cutting of the material or the part in holding tolerances and anything else that stresses that might come into play with more traditional machining.
1: Well, yeah, your your work holding can be um, you definitely with high RPM. You still need to have pretty balanced uh, setup in general, mm-hmm. but your work holding doesn't have to be as large uh, because you have less force on the part. Um, you can one benefit as well is a lot of times you can get away without coolant too if needed. Really, Uh, which can save quite a bit of time too. Yeah, there's a lot of dry machining with high-speed machining because, as long as you have uh, proper tooling and you're getting the chip out with the heat, you're not really affecting the part much. Um, Most of the time, too, with there's when you're doing roughing using a high-speed machining technique, um, you also normally have to do a finish pass on the part. Um, So that's a simple operation, but your time roughing the part is significantly less. So for
0: high-speed milling, do you require different cutting tools or how are the cutting tools selected differently than traditional machining? What What are the considerations?
1: Well, compared to say conventional machining, you're used to going to like the largest tool that you could fit inside of a pocket. Mm -hmm. Um, With high-speed machining, you're able to go to a smaller tool that maybe you don't need to do a tool change and you can do other features at the same time. Um, Usually, at least on our machines, we use single fluid just because of the large evacuation of the area for the chip. Um, that allows us to go a little bit faster, um, but so, if I can stop it's about the same, just smaller
0: so a single flute versus two or more flutes the chip evacuation just educate me a little more on why you 're able to why that 's important for for high speed milling
1: so it 's all about heat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in, on our machines, if we're, say we're milling aluminum, we want to get that chip out as fast as possible. Um, anytime I'm milling aluminum, if it gets heated into the flute, it just welds itself onto the flute of the tool. Mm-hmm. So a single flute will have a larger, um, the flute itself will be larger because it's taking up a larger area of the tool and it'll be able to get the chip out faster. Okay, great. How about?
0: Coatings for tools, do those matter?
1: Uh, it's material dependent and how big your run is and finish requirements. Um, I don't have a ton of experience in coatings. There's scientists that do that. Right. Um, but, you know, when we get into steels and lighter stuff and steel, then we obviously use a coating, but I don't personally know the difference of all the different coatings. Okay. So a lot of this
0: for high-speed milling to be effective is based upon the CAM software. Do other, and we don't have to get into names here, but are all CAM packages able to do this today or are there some that are better suited to high-speed milling than others?
1: Well, I'd say almost all of them can do it now. Um, I think what's starting to progress is how easy it is to uh have a solid model and your stock in view and just tell it to rough it out and the, machine, the cam software being able to figure out the most efficient toolpath automatically <clears throat> i think that advancement has it's gotten better and better and better over the past 10 years i could see and to the point now where you know you define your stock it knows what the solid is. You give it a tool and it figures out where to go. It knows the length of the tool, everything automatically. And I think that's what's, you know, the, the time it takes for someone to program, um, a roughing path on, you know, a part where it knows that this is a pocket, this is a flat surface. This is say a mm-hmm. 3d surface. And on a 3d surface, we want to have a lighter step up coming up over mm-hmm. that edge. um, Softwares can figure that out automatically now, which I think everybody should be using. Um, Because it's essentially a couple clicks of of the mouse, and you already have a roughing path that's got you like sixty, seventy percent there.
0: And what about the other thirty, forty percent? What is that experience based for high speed milling, or what what considerations in programming?
1: Well, I think there's, when you get into like high speed, hard milling, wow. um, say for finishing steels, things like that, you want to actually, you have to go pretty deep. Um, not a lot of the software is compensate for what size or what edge of a ball is uh, like if you're using a ball mill to finish a 3d part. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to, you want to keep a constant, you know, feed rate and RPM going around, but you're not always on the same part of the ball. So you have different surface feed on different parts of a ball, obviously, and then mm-hmm. you're at zero at the bottom because <laughs> it's not center cutting. Right. So so a lot of softwares were not able to adjust for that, or you have to keep a part on a certain angle or tilt it to do some hard milling to get really nice 3D features.
0: But some CAM software has moved to the point where it's advanced enough to think about those Considerations.
1: Uh, I think they're close. <laughs> there might be something out there I'm not aware of. Okay, <clears throat> um, but uh, we see a lot of hard milling or like finishing work with ball mills, things like that, uh, at high feed rates, high RPMs. But the trick is always to make sure you're on the same part of the ball the whole time. Gotcha. Hmm.
0: So, how about on the shop floor, actually? running the mills, I know that depending upon the operator, and I say operator, but also could be a machinist who has set up capability, there was a reluctance sometimes to run programs at 100% of feed or RPM. Do you see resistance with people who just aren't used to high-speed milling when it gets to the floor? And how do you get mm-hmm. around that? How do you help shop owners and shops make people more comfortable?
1: Uh, it's a confidence thing, to be honest with you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I still, if if I'm doing something crazy on the machine, I don't I don't use the machines as much as I used to, but. Um, if I'm going to do something, I usually still have, you know, I start off a little bit lower, and I don't just run the machine right 100% full out. Um, but you know, if it's a program that I trust, I'll just hit go and walk away. So I think it's it's really a confidence um, thing on, you know, showing the setup person or the operator this is what's going to happen and this is what it should sound like things of that nature too, because, um, you've walked through shops and you can hear when something's good and when something's bad. Right. (laughs) Right. So I think it's that confidence thing and getting used to it. Um, plus, you know, the machinists, um, if they're used to doing things a certain way for so long, it's basically like trying to teach someone to tie their shoes a different way. Mm -hmm. So, um, it just takes some learning and getting used to, um, but it's definitely worth it in the end. Um, every shop that I see doing, you know, high-speed milling techniques of, you know, adaptive milling or Opti milling or whatever you want to call it out of the CAM, um, are getting way better cycle times and better tool life. You
0: mentioned the sound on the floor. Does high-speed milling sound differently than traditional
1: milling? Oh, definitely. <laughs> and in what way? So, uh, so you're more of a high pay, um, a high speed whine, mm-hmm. more than a, a low grunt. <laughs> you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you've been in a machine shop, you know what I'm talking about. Right. But um, yeah, you you have more of a, a high speed constant whine. Um, you don't hear different pitches. Um, usually you're co- consistently engaged in the material. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as much of a large grunt pause for a few and then a large grunt again. Um, it's more consistently just like a, a light whine. Uh, it's actually a little bit quieter depending on what you're milling. What sounds would
0: be bad if you're hearing it coming from a high speed mill?
1: any sort of rattling, <laughs> <Obviously>. <laughs> um, any sort of rattling and you'll be able to hear chatter pretty quickly too. Uh, once it, the whole thing with high speed milling is that when you raise RPMs and you start doing these high feed rates, you have to be pretty cautious about run out and, uh, things being balanced and held properly. Mm-hmm. Um, because any sort of vibration or harmonic, you will end up seeing in the part. So does that relate to
0: fixturing or the, uh, what other? Let's say tool uh, holders. Tool holders as well? Or is it primarily tool tool holders?
1: Holders, Primarily tool holders. Um, Spindles have to be very well trammed. You don't want to have, you know, a vice with a lot of room underneath. You want to make sure everything's secure. Okay. So getting back to the people, how much time does it take
0: to get a shop up to speed if they've never used high-speed milling? And do you need to hire someone who has high-speed milling experience?
1: Uh, I think on the campsite, you could probably do it in-house if you have people that are programming and that want to use high-speed milling. Um, a lot of times it's the setup person trusting the programmer. So if a programmer could sit at a machine with an operator or a setup person and maybe show some high speed machine techniques and explain the philosophy on it, Mm -hmm. I think it could be adapted fairly easily. Um, but when you look at, um, you know, new, new people coming into the industry, they, this is pretty much all they're learning. Um, there are some conventional methods that, you know, for some parts it does work out well. Um, high speed machining isn't gonna, or milling isn't going to be, uh, the best for everything. There's some features and things like that that are going to be better suited for more of a conventional style. Um, But nowadays, you can go on any machining group on Instagram or any video you see on YouTube, and most of it's all high-speed machining now.
0: Does the CAM software, is it it smart enough today that it knows when the high-speed machining, and we'll call the more traditional, will automatically put in the right types of uh, feeds and speeds? Or is that still up to the programmer?
1: Uh, depends. So there's there's programming speeds and speeds uh, for that type of operation, and you could set it up that way. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're doing a high-speed milling technique and you're using this tool, this is the RPM and feed rates you should use. Um, <laughs> And you can calculate your step over rate according to the tool diameter, things like that, and just set it up as like an expression, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's got to be softwares out there that um, maybe know. That's something that I haven't been able to find, at least in what I've been using, is um, what size feature... Or what shape is best suited for high speed compared to more of a um, standard machining um, tool path, and for the for the CAM software to figure out if that's a good fit or not.
0: So we'll say that today it's definitely the programmer who is making the call. Yes, definitely. Okay. What other things do you have to think about as a job shop owner if you want to implement high speed
1: milling in your shop? Let's see, there's really getting the right software that your programmers are comfortable with. Um, everyone that you're going to be hiring is most likely already been trained on it. Um, if you're hiring, uh entry level machinists, they all are gonna know what you know, adaptive milling and Mm -hmm. opti rough or opti milling is. Um it's 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 a beginning to be the norm, really. Um, at least from what I've seen out here on the West Coast. Uh, if I go into a shop and I see someone just doing, you know, basic step down, step over repeat type thing with the The control. It's it's usually pretty scary. <laughs> usually a pretty dirty shop. One or two machines, a couple of guys. Uh, it's not the machine shop that's taken off or has rows of machines and clean and everybody smiling. So we're gonna um, sur-
0: we're gonna circle back to that topic in a little bit. But before we leave, high speed milling, high speed machining. Do you have any? success stories where somebody was not using it and they either for a particular parts or program where the, it it made a huge difference and they are smiling.
1: Um, I've seen it quite a bit in the, um, let's say high frequency RF um, like satellite parts. Uh, Because being efficient with, like, a small tool to do tons of pockets or, you know, we're talking large sheet material with hundreds of pockets in it, Mm -hmm. uh, to come in and machine all that stuff with, say, an eighth-inch tool and be able to do all these tiny pockets and do it all in one pass going down, Um, we've taken some parts that have been, you know, 18 hours and brought them down to, like, eight. Really? Yeah, and within By just that, having higher, having higher RPM and doing the proper techniques and the high-speed machining. Sure. So
0: beyond a huge time savings, because that's more than fifty percent reduction in cycle time,
1: mm-hmm.
0: were there any quantifications of better tolerances, better surface finishes, other characteristics of the parts that? Resulted uh, that that came out better as the result of high speed milling.
1: I would say tool life for sure. Um, yeah, so we could use one tool to finish the whole job. They were switching out tools in between. Mm-hmm. Um, the finish wise, you're still doing a finish pass. So there's not a huge difference there, mm-hmm. um, but mainly just the the time of chick- the the time it takes to remove that much material. So the chip evacuation was much higher. Gotcha. Um, there was also less warping and things in the part. Um, there's just less by need. having less. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent.
0: That's, that's a huge win. So where does the Datron high-speed milling product line fit in? And well, let's first talk about that, but then I will also want to, Ask you about how does it fit into high speed machining as a as the that as a process. So, but let's just hear about what Datron is doing with high speed milling first.
1: So we're along the same principles as any high speed milling um, that can be done on a machine, but we have a different uh, way of going at it. So we're using smaller tools. So. 10 millimeters, smaller, using very tight tolerance, uh, cutters and, uh, tool holders. So we're using tool holders that are, you know, three microns or less to run out. Hmm. Um, we're also running on a, uh, machine that is somewhat lightweight. So we're more nimble than having this huge, um, you know, heavy Z axes or a, a huge table moving. So we're we're moving less mass. So we're able to excel decel faster. Um. So in in that nature, it's kind of built just for lighter cuts, faster feed rates, and having a spindle that goes to forty or sixty thousand RPM helps.
0: Anything else that differentiate you from other high-speed milling companies?
1: Um, what we try to focus on is more flat work. So we have some unique ways to hold flat material. So we're using vacuum tables. Um, our coolant is also a little bit different. So we focus mainly on aluminum plastics and composites. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're milling aluminum, we're actually using ethanol as a coolant. So right. ethanol is yeah. <laughs> Ethanol is not cold until you have it evaporate. So we're blowing ethanol droplets of ethanol through an MQL system um, and blowing air on it. So it's constantly evaporating ethanol right at the tool base, mm-hmm. making everything really cold. Um, And that helps with getting the heat out with the chip and keeping the tool cold so that we don't get any welding of aluminum onto the the tool at, you know, 40,000 RPM.
0: Does the ethanol, all of it evaporate so that you don't have to worry about coolant disposal?
1: Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) the ethanol totally evaporates, your parts clean, uh, no deburring. Um, I'm kind of used to it now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> kind of spoiled, I guess. But um yeah, it's it's something I'm used to, but it's not very conventional normally. Um we had some people, you know, some people use isopropyl and things like that, but mm-hmm. uh the use of ethanol is definitely helps quite a bit in just keeping things clean. Um all your chips are dry, uh mm-hmm. they're easier to clean off the part and uh there's no mess. Sure. And you don't have to wash the parts afterwards. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: What is the cost of getting into high speed milling? I'm sure you have a range of pricing over your product line, but what's the, what's the entry level? And then what does it get up to?
1: I've seen videos with people using, you know, a shape Oco like homemade machine. Um, or like a, a small home-based machine doing high-speed milling. Um, so there's really no limit. The high-speed milling is more of a, a technique. So if you do have lower RPM, you're just having a lower feed rate, but you can still use the same the same technique. Um, and you're going to have the same effect, just obviously it's going to take a little bit longer. Um, but usually with those machines, you're still faster than you would be doing conventional milling because of Uh, rigidity, things of that nature.
0: Okay. Well, specifically with Datron, what's the price entry point for your technology and what's, I guess, what a typical machine would go for?
1: So uh, the Neo, for instance, um, you can get for under $100,000 with a 40,000 RPM spindle. Mm -hmm. Um, probe and our newest control, the next, which is very easy to use. Um, I've had students that were, you know, freshmen in high school show up and program a part in fusion and make it within 15 minutes and had never used a CNC machine before. Really? Yeah. (laughs) It it sounds ridiculous, but um, I've, it's got to be one of the easiest controls I've ever seen to use, and everyone uh, jumped on buying or getting Autodesk uh, Fusion Three Hundred and Sixty because they basically gave it to you know students and makers and things of that nature for free. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really, um, I think that kind of boosted the the maker community um, or people being interested in machining,
0: right. So
1: you're seeing a lot of but, fusion out there. A ton of fusion. Um, so still, you still have Mastercam out there. Um, you have all those softwares out there. But mm-hmm. um, what we've seen is that it's much easier to find someone that knows how to use fusion than any of the other softwares just by um, it being more of a... They, they have a community around it as well. Mm-hmm. I think that helps. Um and the younger generation, just being able to learn everything off of the internet. Right. Well, that's clever of Autodesk. Good for them.
0: Let's yeah. switch gears. And you mentioned about dirty shops versus the clean shops. <laughs> so you've, you've been in a lot of shops. How, actually, how many do you think you've been inside of over your career?
1: That's a good question. Um, I've probably installed just a Datron, like over a hundred machines myself. And then being in, you know, all the shops I've gone to, to look at projects and things like that. I have no clue. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. (laughs) I had to, but Opportunity
0: early in my career, I sold the CAD CAM software and I specialized in job shops. So I've been in hundreds, if not thousands of shops myself. And you definitely pick up on ways that the, you can just tell if a shop is struggling or, yeah, struggling going day to day versus somebody who has, is more profitable and has more of a growth mindset. So Would you agree when you walk into shops, there's just certain things that stand out that give you a quick glimpse of probably how they're
1: operating? Sometimes you can tell before you step in the door. If you can smell the coolant, (laughs) rampant coolant from outside, uh, it's (laughs) usually a bad sign. That's a a great point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) What are Um, some other things that are, that, you see in more profitable and faster growing shops that other shops aren't doing?
1: They're taking care of their equipment and their facilities. Um, Usually they're automating how they uh, control what jobs are doing, where Um, there's not people standing next to a machine. Usually there's one person running a row of machines. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually the, yeah, everything's just clean and it has its place. it's, you can walk into a shop and know fairly quickly if they haven't made any changes in the last, you know, 10, 20 years. And how do you think that
0: disadvantages a shop if you see that they haven't made changes?
1: Um, they're going to just fall behind. Um, for instance, we were talking about high-speed milling, and most likely the older shops are not doing that. Um, usually they're not taking care of their equipment. Um, there's, there's quite a bit, uh, they're most likely using older software to do the cam. So they might not have high speed milling capabilities just on the cam side. So they're not Um, keeping up on their maintenance contracts. Well, just maintenance contracts, but also, um, they're not spending money to make more money. Um, they're not putting money in the right avenues. Maybe. Sure. Well, I think
0: there's a mindset that I see and that we used at Rapid in that you can look at spending money as either an expense or an investment and if it's expense you're always trying to save money and you will take I'll say I'll, I'll deliberately use the word cheapest solution whereas an investment mindset is you are looking to the future, to, to growth. And sometimes you make good investments. Sometimes you make bad investments, but it's all to grow the shop and not to save money. So I think you, you touched upon having a clean shop and it, At the end of the shift, if you look at it as an expense to have the guys spend 15 minutes cleaning their work areas when they could be running the machines, as opposed to all the benefits that come with a clean shop and taking care of your equipment, is that something that you would, that you see? Well,
1: not just that, um, I I would say even, you know, the investment of 15 minutes for someone that did care about their work environment is Mm -hmm. definitely worth it um especially in the long run because if if for instance our shop here in livermore we we do some r d and we make sample parts and things like that but Mm -hmm. the machines are never left dirty at the end of the day um one reason being is that we do better work in a clean environment we care more um mm-hmm. you know, if you if you go into a dirty environment, you're not gonna have the same care because it's already dirty. Um just it it's it's kind of a mentality uh state for me. I'm also German, so I'm a little <laughs> about things being in place and and being clean, but um but no, it's uh I mean our shop we have a white floor, <laughs> which is kind of unheard of, but we have white tile in our in our with, the, with all the machines. Sure. And, um, it's, it's just one of those, it's a mentality and, you know, kind of how you feel good when you have new clothes on, Sure, <laughs> new fresh clothes on. So, uh, we want to feel that way all the time when we go in to make parts, especially parts that could be worth thousands of dollars, you know?
0: Right. And I think that's a great point. It also gives Confidence to the customer when they walk into a clean shop versus a dirty shop that you will be paying attention to their parts, particularly if they are tighter tolerance or not an easy part to make.
1: Every part is important to the customer, or they wouldn't be making it. So um, you just have to be able to add that detail um, mm-hmm. and give that impression. Definitely,
0: so I use the term that a lot of job shops are still in the twentieth century. what beyond what we have just talked about, what are some of the specific things that you see shops that you walk in that they that they're doing that is holding them back but could easily be changed?
1: I think a big part is um What we're seeing it more and more now is just tracking, Um, knowing how long parts take and um, really just collecting information from these machines and from the shop in general to make better decisions and to program things properly. How are they- There's a lot of stuff- Yeah, I was gonna say, how how are they better tracking it?
0: What, What sort of tools are out there that you know of? I know of
1: um, that's a tough one. <laughs> off the top of my head I'd well, have to look at the names of them. Yeah,
0: well, but, I know um, there's a machine metrics is out there, datanomics. I don't know if you've seen any other specific ones, but they are collecting the data at the machine tool.
1: And, well, they're even taking it so far to collecting you know what tools need to be ordered. For jobs and kind of automating the whole process, um, there's just some of the stuff I've seen being done in shops. I don't remember what software's they were all using. Some of them even tried to make their own, which I don't understand. But sure, actually, one of the things that we used very successfully
0: at Rapid was we had the MSC automated cabinets. Do you see a lot of those, or from other folks in shops?
1: I see them every now and then. Um, a lot of prototype shops will do that uh, just because of not knowing what you're going to need right away <laughs> mm-hmm. and being able to keep it on hand without having the overhead. Sure. So uh, you can basically have you know, a larger variety of tools on hand, but you're only paying for them when you use them. The big benefit for us was
0: that, as you know, machinists always want a new tool but <laughs> exactly and they' they're, they're ingenious in how they figure out how to get the tools without it being traced back to them so what we found is because everybody had a, a, a card that they would scan when they needed tooling or they would punch in their code their the ability to track the tooling that was used by each machinist, created a level of accountability and we were able to reduce our tooling costs just by doing that. I thought that was pretty interesting on the, just the psychology part of it.
1: Accountability is a huge factor in everything.
0: (laughs) Well, I think what you mentioned with the ability now to get more data And shops are tracking more coming out of the machines. It's not so much Big Brother. It's just there's a range of acceptability for Mm -hmm. the number of tools you're taking out, the time that you're, you're spending on the job. So it's not that you are trying to run a sweatshop where you have to put out so many parts per hour, but that we there's a minimal acceptable range and it's for everyone's benefit because if you're not hitting that, then the shop's not going to be in business to give you a paycheck next month.
1: Oh, exactly. Now, um, what's uh, How do you see software helping besides, uh, you know, tool monitoring and, you know, machine monitoring? How do you see it helping in a job shop? Well, it's not
0: there yet, but what we were close to doing at Rapid and where the, the company that I'm involved with now, Paperless Parts, is you have different measurements of machining time. You measure it at the quoting time or estimate it. You create a machining time at the programming time and then you have a actual runtime at the machine. And being able to correlate all three of those, and in particular, so you have a feedback loop that makes the whole process smarter. I think that's, it's not there yet, but that is coming fast and the ability to definitely link your estimated time to your other times is hugely important. We did that manually at Rapid, and it was to the point where when we created the router, the programming operation had the estimated programming time on the job and the estimated runtime on the job. And if those things varied too widely from the result, uh, well, both, it was sitting in programming. We, if we said, you're going to take two hours of programming it, and it was in there for three hours. We created alerts so that the, someone in the shop was asking the question, well, what's going on with this part? Why is it taking so long to program? And it most likely was not the programmer's fault. It was just something that wasn't captured in estimating. And those were the types of things that help make your estimating better. The same thing with the runtime. If we, after the part was programmed, came up with a runtime that was significantly higher than what was estimated, we asked the question before running the part. So having those sort of feedback loops really helped the shop understand better what it is doing before it's actually manufacturing parts in many cases. And to me that's part of the the fun and the excitement of where where job shop manufacturing is going.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's just um I think it's a definite safe proof for being able to control, you know, your profits. Mhm. Um it's That's key. I mean, um, everybody's doing it manually now, I guess, or doing it by feel. Right. At Paperless, what we are
0: in the process of doing is, because we have integration with ERP systems, is the pushing back of pushing into the ERP systems, estimated times, as well as we use a lot of artificial intelligence and data science in our estimating tools. So we want to know the actual runtime, the actual programming times compared to what was estimated so we can get smarter. One thing I wanted to jump back to is when you walk into a shop, I noticed that a shop that had a lot of different equipment manufacturers wasn't consistent in their equipment on the shop floor, was typically struggling because the if you if you dial it down to just two or three equipment manufacturers, then the controllers are more common, so employees can run any machine jobs get switched around easier, and you are able to perform maintenance easier it 's a lot less complicated. Than having a bunch of different machines. So, what are your thoughts? What do you see out there? And is that something you would agree on?
1: I would definitely agree. The most I've seen is usually like four or five, and it's usually not really a job shop. It's, um, you know, an OEM that's just doing prototyping, and they all have their own different tools or function. Mm-hmm. But I think when you get into a job shop environment where um, maybe you have higher turnover. You have to train people. Um, you, if you had multiple machines, just trying to hold those relationships with all those machine manufacturers to make sure that everything's, you know, good is very difficult. Um, a lot of times you'll see a, a job shop just stick with like one type of machine just because they have that relationship with, you know, a manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> I definitely see the benefit of having at least a couple of different types of machines just as different tools for different types of parts. Sure. Yeah, we had mostly Haas, but
0: we had some proto and I think uh, one other brand in there for some specialized stuff. So I'm going to put you on the Haas. Just,
1: well, go ahead and finish, finish up your thought okay. there. Then there's also the. What do you feel about the time that, say, you get a contract type job at a job shop that requires a certain type of equipment? Um, What's your thoughts on, you know, taking that type of work and having to venture out and buy equipment just for, you know, one part that might just be a contract where there's still money to be made? Well,
0: Personally, I am not in favor of that because I've seen too many contract jobs where that happens going away after six months. And it's really tough to guarantee that you will have a long enough contract to pay off a machine. So Mm -hmm. I always like to really control the risks I was taking in the shop. And for me that risk was too high. Now saying that I certainly have been in plenty of shops where it's worked out. Well, it's a partnership with a customer, but it, I guess it's a case by case basis.
1: I just wanted to get your take on it. Cause we see it periodically and, um, Usually it's a, it's a long time before anything ever goes through, and it's a very low possibility that anything happens with it. Yeah. yeah, I,
0: it, I'd rather stick with what I know how to do, what I'm good at, and that mm-hmm. typically involves what I already have in-house. I'd rather add more of that and just grow from that perspective.
1: Yeah, that's my thought exactly. Okay. Usually. Yeah. So you're going to put me on the hot seat. I'm going to put you on the hot seat. So
0: (laughs) you are working for a company that sells machines. But let's say you just had the passion to go out and make parts. You were going to start a shop to do that. How would you do it? What would you focus on? What do you think is an underserved niche today?
1: I would take everything that people are no bidding.
0: And what do you see stuff to as, be honest with you? Yeah, what, so, do you see, what types uh, of parts very, are being no bidding? Mm-hmm. Very
1: small parts, very small parts, things that I would need high RPM for, smaller tools, uh, unique work holding, because um, that basically would be my blue ocean. There's not, there's not. A lot of people out there that are focusing on making these tiny parts anymore, or they're getting whatever they want for them. Um, I would, of course, I would have a Datron machine because of they course spent around it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, I would also probably get like a Kern or something if money was no object, because now I'm opening up my possibilities to make parts that no one else can make. So um, say that again. That you no would get a. You would get a what? A kern. What's a Kern? Kern? Uh, it's a, a very uh, high speed, high tolerance machine out of southern Germany. Um, I'll send you a link to it after after our talk here. Uh, but they're holding, you know, sub micron tolerances and cutting with tools. They're you know, couple micron large. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a contact that you should probably talk to there as well. <laughs> and that makes, um, that makes a lot of sense because as
0: parts are getting smaller and smaller, they, that that would be the trend of where they're going, and they're certainly not going away. So,
1: Well, I would just want the tools that most people don't have or don't know how to use to put set me apart. Sure. Um, and that's pretty much it because if you have the right tools to do a job, there's always going to be work. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I know it sounds a little ridiculous. I'd rather take smaller volume at a higher price than higher volume at a lower price and make sure I I have the talent to do it. Yeah, totally agree with you. So,
0: well, I think we should start wrapping up along those lines. You are not going to leave Datron, but if somebody is interested in taking you up on your idea how can they reach you or daytron? Uh,
1: they can reach me, um, through my email, uh, Chris.hopkins at Datron.com. Um, I have people call me and say, you know, I'm looking for to make this type of part. And I'll, even if it's not a daytron part, I know some of the other machines and some of the mm-hmm. other vendors in the area and I'll send them their way. Um, My goal isn't to sell a Datron, but to make sure that they have the right tool for the right job. Well, Chris. Yeah, they could send me an email or um, also um, my number is also online. uh, So they could call our office too anytime. And it's simply
0: Datron.com? Yes. For your website. Great. Well, this has been super. Thanks for all the insights you've shared today. My eyes have definitely been opened in regards to high-speed milling and high-speed machining. And I am sort of kicking myself that we hadn't looked at that more seriously at Rapid. So I also think that some of the commonalities of the higher growth, higher profitability shops are important for our audience to hear about. And it's what we need to share why I'm doing this podcast to help us raise the bar for custom part manufacturers. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and sharing the knowledge you've accumulated over the years. Anything else you would like to add?
1: I would say don't just focus on the high-speed milling part of it, but mm-hmm. on the whole process. Um, just how fast you can get it through the whole cycle of, you know, getting uh quote, or getting uh, RFQ or request or <laughs> request for quote, mm-hmm. <laughs> or um, all the way to the card being shipped out. Um, we live in a time now where convenience is worth more than you know money or um, anything else. So uh, if you can be convenient to the customer and be fast, um, it's going to set you apart.
0: I don't know if you know, the, our core purpose at Rapid was we manufacture time. And I think that lines exactly with what you just said. So again, thanks for being on the show. And, and for everyone, for yeah, absolutely. And for everyone, that's it for another stunningly exciting episode of the Job Shop show. And we would like to hear from you want to know what clicked and get your suggestions on topics and other guests for the show. To give us some feedback, simply go to thejobshopshow.com and it's thejobshopshow.com and click us in the upper right-hand corner. So until next time, happy part manufacturing.